letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus in Asia. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. If you've um, gone to church for any length of time or heard preachers preach, uh, you've probably noticed that sometimes they have some form of a memorable outline or a hook. Paul does too. Paul is a preacher at heart, and so here in chapter 5, all of his points fall under the same kind of framing with the idea of walking. And so he starts the chapter saying, walk in love, uh, and then we saw last week he said, walk in light. Uh, this, uh, this morning he's going to say, walk carefully, and then he'll say, uh, walk in the spirit next week. He's hitting these points, and And I want to just draw your attention as we look at walking wisely this morning that Paul's approach to the Christian life, and that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about since Jesus has come, since God has saved you, since you are a new man in Christ, since you have been forgiven, since you've been given the Holy Spirit, all those things are included before the walk. Therefore, walk, okay? But when he tells us how to walk, he gives us an approach from multiple angles. He looks at it from different views. He doesn't just say, just do this one thing. He says, think about it from this angle, and then if you consider it from over here, he gives us a three-dimensional picture of the Christian life. Okay, And so here in Ephesians chapter 5, look with me at verse 15, and we're just going to look at three verses this morning. Um, And as I read, I just want you to notice how obvious Paul's point is, how narrow his focus is. Look with me at verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray and ask God's help in understanding and receiving his word this morning. Father, we uh, desire to know you and to better understand your will for our lives. I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that everyone here, Christian or not, has at some time, some place, wondered what your will was for their lives. And so I pray, God, that as we look at this passage, you would help us to understand how that works and also help us to unpack this idea of wisdom so that we can fulfill the commandment here to walk wisely. We pray that you'd help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's pretty self-evident. Paul's main point is really simply, he says it three different ways. He says, walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. And then in 17, he says something similar. He says, therefore, do not be foolish. Okay? To not be foolish is to be wise. To not be unwise is to be wise. To be wise is to be wise, right? His his point is really simple, but I want you to just pause for a second and realize with me that this brings us into the category of wisdom, which we don't always think about, talk about, consider as Christians, um, and, and outside of the church, I would say it's the same. Notice here that he doesn't just say, although he has said, 
you need to walk in a way that is right as opposed to wrong. Or even you need to walk in the ways of love as opposed to hatred. He said both of those things. That's what he's told us the last few weeks. But wisdom is different. Wisdom brings us to a different category, okay? Whereas righteousness or morality is black and white, wisdom is like a rainbow. It's a multitude of colors. It's a range. Whereas morality is universal, true for everyone in every circumstances. When I say you shall not murder, I mean you collectively as human beings. It's a commandment for all people, okay? Wisdom is always particular. It's about particular people recognizing the particular circumstances in, the particular resources you have. In fact, there's a place in the Proverbs, one of the Old Testament books of wisdom literature, where one verse says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, so if somebody is just talking out their rear, sometimes it's better to just bite your tongue and not goad them on. But the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, do you see how if we were talking about a moral issue, if this was a multiple choice test, you're stuck either way. But what, what Proverbs is trying to recognize is there's circumstances where you need to answer a fool. And there's circumstances where you keep your mouth shut. That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowing the difference. Okay? Wisdom is, uh, like I said, it's not universal, it's particular, it's not black and white, it's, it's gradient, it's a grayscale, it's, it's opportunities. Um, on top of that, wisdom isn't just about particularly religious decisions. If you read the book of Proverbs, it doesn't tell you how to behave at church. If you read the book of Proverbs, it doesn't tell you how to go about worshiping God. It doesn't talk about prayer at all. What it says is, when you make a business deal, when you go about your career, when you choose a spouse, right? It gets into the everyday broad picture of life, okay? And then let me give you one last difference. When we talk about morality, we base that on, we root that on the reality of God's revealed character, okay? In fact, where we draw our understanding of right and wrong as Christians is from the scriptures. Wisdom doesn't ignore that. It assumes it. Both the Psalms and Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, there's one question that if you get wrong, it just categorically puts you in the camp of fool or wise. Okay? Because if God is real and you make every decision in your life not knowing that, all of those decisions are inherently foolish, right? It's, it's like trying to do a math equation and leaving out the biggest and most obvious constant. It's like trying to divide by zero. It doesn't matter how good your equation works or looks, it doesn't work, okay? And so it assumes all those things, but it also draws from other sources. Wisdom is observational in nature. It goes, oh man, most of the time when you do this, this happens, okay? In fact, I would suggest to you that in the Jewish understanding of wisdom, we would fit all of modern science as we know it. Wisdom recognizes that the way God has designed the world and human beings works pretty consistently. But that also means that you can't turn to Proverbs and see them as promises. You know what I mean? If God says, hey, hard work leads to wealth in the Proverbs, you can't call foul 
if you've been working really hard and things don't work out, Proverbs aren't promises. But there is, and we would all recognize this, a correlation, a relationship between a good work ethic and a good outcome, right? That's a proverb. And so it's observational in nature. It goes, this is how things seem to work. Not only that, but it has no problem drawing from sources that have nothing to do with God. In fact, a good deal of what we have represented in the book of Proverbs were gathered by the Jews from the Egyptians, from the Phoenicians. They're like, they're right. He's right. That's totally true. We need to know that as well. Okay? And so wisdom is this broader category that draws from observation and experience. So with all of that understanding, isn't it interesting here that Paul feels it's necessary to say, if you're going to live a true Christian life, if you're going to live a life that is faithful to Jesus and honors and glorifies God, it's got to be a wise life. Right? I'm saying this, and I'm kind of doubling down on this, because I think for a lot of us, wisdom is optional, or irrelevant, or irreligious. It has nothing to do with what God wants for our life. It might be a good thing, it might be a bad thing. But again, a portion of your Bible is wisdom literature. And that's not just the Proverbs, but also the book of Job. Have you ever read the book of Job and noticed how different it is from the rest of Scripture? Uh, There are certain psalms that are wisdom literature. Most people would recognize the New Testament book of James as wisdom literature. We find Jesus utilizing Proverbs and some of his parables are wisdom literature. This is a major focus. Jesus was not merely a sage. You know what I mean by sage? A wise man who imparted wisdom to people. But he was a sage. He was more than that. But he also spoke and regularly spoke wisdom. And here's the thing. God cares about your business deals. He cares about your choice of friends. He cares about your work ethic. He cares about all these things, even when they don't seem clear, black and white moral decisions. And so he says here, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Okay? And so the first thing I want to point out to you is that the Christian life is a careful life. Okay? Now, that word careful is a little bit slippery. Because when I think of careful, I think of danger. And, and the word has that idea, right? When, when you're being careful when you're cutting vegetables, you're aware that the knife is sharp and that your fingers are tender, right? There's carefulness. But the word that's used here in the Greek in the original language is much broader. In fact, if you have a really old Bible, a King James, it says walk circumspectly, okay? Walk circumspectly, which, by the way, is the first thing I tried to teach my oldest son, Logan, when he was just a kid. Because toddlers need to know how to walk circumspectly, right? The way that they amble and move around the house is completely unaware of the things around them. They just assume they can plow through any obstacle. And so they trip and they stumble and they fall. This word careful is that idea. It's walk in a way that you're aware of your surroundings. You want me to contrast this? Have you ever seen somebody who's walking and trying to read Twitter at the same time? Right, and they're going about it, and they got their phone like this, and they're doing it in Seattle of all places where roots break up all the sidewalks, and then they trip. They weren't walking carefully. They weren't walking circumspectly. 
The idea that Paul is trying to emphasize here is we should live our lives with eyes wide open, paying attention, looking around, assessing the scenarios, considering what's in front of us, weighing the options and noticing the obstacles. Okay? That's carefulness. He says, look carefully how you walk, and he says, not as unwise, but as wise. Okay? The idea here, again, is that we should go about our lives paying attention. Okay? What would be the opposite of this? It's not hard to label. It's a careless life. It's a life that's not paying attention. It's a life of chaos that just goes about life without much thought and isn't really paying attention. God wants you to consider your steps. He wants you to pay attention to what's going on. He wants you to look carefully at the things that are around you. Okay. Now, and again, I want to be clear here. We're not talking about right and wrong. Imagine here that you're weighing the possibility of leaving a job you have right now for another job. Is that a moral decision? Most of the time, no. Maybe you're a prostitute. Change of careers then might be a moral decision. Okay? But for the most of the time, it's not a moral decision and it's not right and wrong in the sense of this is God's will and this is not God's will. It's not right and the wrong in the sense of this offends God and this pleases him. It's more complicated than that. It, it, it involves factors. And let's be honest, we can make big decisions like that, a change in career for a lot of bad reasons. But we can also make them for a lot of good reasons. Weighing those good reasons, recognizing what's going on in our own hearts, what's really motivating us, considering option A or option B or option C, that's wisdom. That's where wisdom comes in. Okay. Now, the idea again here is that you should be paying attention, that you should be looking carefully how you walk. And then notice verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Okay. Now, that pushes us into another category. In fact, there's a little bit of tension here. Being careful and taking advantage of the opportunities, there's a tension there. Okay. Being careful, you could achieve and never do anything. Right? Well, I, it, you know, in fact, some of the Proverbs say this. I'm not going outside because there's a lion in the streets, right? It's an excuse. It's an irrational fear. It, it's a recognition that, you know what? The world is a dangerous place, so the safest thing I can do is nothing. And so if Paul just said, hey, be careful, you can achieve carefulness and do nothing. But that would be unwise. Okay? And so this second one, when he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil, this is the recognition that you can have an inactive life. And that wouldn't be glorifying to God. You can, be a, you can have a purposeless life. And that wouldn't be glorifying to God. You can miss out on opportunities. Okay? Now, when it says, making the best use of the time, it uses just a single word here. And again, if you have a different Bible, it might say redeeming the time. Okay. Redeeming the time means noticing, you know, a limited time offer. It means recognizing a coupon. 
and turning it in for a cheaper price. That's what the word redeeming means. And that's what the word implies here. In fact, I would suggest to you that even though it's a bit obsessive, have you ever seen those coupon hunters? You know, there was a period of time where I saw them on TV all the time, where they'd walk through with like two carts of groceries, and they had done all the work at home and finagled all these coupons together that worked somehow together, you know, and didn't cancel one another out. And they'd walk out with two carts of groceries for 25 bucks. Have you seen this? Okay. They're working the system. That's taking advantage of the opportunity. Okay. The suggestion here isn't loopholes. The su- suggestion isn't taking advantage of moral ambiguities. It's thoughtfully working the best scenario. It's intentionally going for the gold and striving to get there. When he says here, making the best use of the time, he follows it by saying, because the days are evil. What does Paul mean? And what does that have to do with wisdom? I I want you to think of it in a couple of different ways. Okay. Um, One is that kind of the bent and flow of the world we live in is towards selfishness and against what we could call human well-being self-well-being sure i got to get my ends right i i've got to i've got to put me first these types of things but but communal well-being something that serves all of society that benefits all of us that builds relationships instead of tears them apart that is not the general path that our world works in when he says the days are evil that's what he's pointing to And so there's a suggestion here that if you don't take action, inherently you go with the flow. If you don't swim upstream, the stream will carry you, okay? That's one way to think of this, and I think that's helpful. But let me suggest another way. Every morning when you wake up, the beginning posture of your day is a waste. That's where you start. That's what he means when he says the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are already lost would be a good way to put it. What he's recognizing is every morning you wake up, you have a 12 to, depending on your sleep cycle, 24-hour opportunity. And once it's gone, it's gone. The day's over, doesn't come back. There's no mulligans, there's no redos. And you add a whole bunch of those days together, that makes up an entire life. And it applies to that same thing. Okay. You only got one shot. You only have one opportunity to make it count. That's what he means when he says redeeming the time. Okay. The idea there of time is also really interesting because it refers to not time as some sort of big concept, but a particular time, an exact particular time. That's why in my Bible it says the opportunities. Okay. It's, it's this limited time offer, like I said earlier, would be a good way to put it. Okay. And so the idea here is that the Christian life is one of purposeless action, of recognizing the times and the seasons and the unique aspects of that, of recognizing that you have exactly what's necessary for the time being of taking action instead of stepping back, okay? of showing courage instead of pretending you don't see what's happening, of taking what you have 
and using it to accomplish good. Okay. Jesus talks about money this way. He refers to money as filthy lucre or unrighteous mammon, which I know is weird language, but it's clearly not positive, right? Money is just a thing. It's just an object. It's neither moral nor immoral, but it is a little bit dirty. Do you know what I mean? Jesus saw things that way too, but he said, nonetheless, use it to make eternal friends. And what he meant was, you can use your money in ways that impact the eternal destiny of those people around you. I told you that Jesus was a sage and he used wisdom literature. Are you familiar with the parable of the talents? It's a parable where uh, a master of a house divvies up some of his wealth to each of his servants. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you $1,000, I'm going to give you $1,000, I'm going to give you $1,000, and I'm leaving Hold on to it for me, invest it for me, and when I come back, there will be an accounting. And so he comes back, and the first guy says, you gave me a 1,000, and I've turned it into 2,000. And he says, great. And the next guy says, you gave me a 1,000, and I turned it into 4,000. And he says, even better. And the last one says, here is the 1,000 you gave me. All of it is accounted for. I buried it under my floorboards, so I know that it's safe. And he says, why didn't you invest it? And he says, well, I knew that you were a terrible person and you'd hold me account accountable. And he says, then why wouldn't I hold you accountable to have done something with it, right? Now, Jesus' parable there is about a whole lot more than money. It's about entire lives. He's recognizing the fact that God has uniquely gifted all of you, put you in unique circumstances and places, given you unique abilities. And they're not equal. And we don't have to pretend that they are. There are people who are smarter than us, and there are people who are not as smart as us. There are people who are stronger than us and not as strong. There are people who are talented in a way that we aren't, and we're talented in a way that we aren't. But all of that is God's gift. And he hasn't given it to you so that you can just hand it to him intact and unused. Redeeming the time means taking those things and investing them to do more. And here's the thing that I love, again, about this idea of wisdom. Because it is particular, you don't have to look at what Joe to the left of you or Sally to the right of you is doing. That has nothing to do with what God is calling you to do. When we talk about virtue, when we talk about morals, there are moral examples and there are bad examples. Wisdom, again, is more complicated. Recognizing that somebody is making the right choice in their life says nothing about your life because you may not have the same opportunities. But that's one of the interesting things about Jesus' parable. In the parable of the talents, every servant is given the same amount. But in the parable of the minas, a different monetary amount that Jesus uses in a different one, he gives them according to their own ability. And God's not going to come to you and say, look, what did you accomplish without recognizing what he's invested in you? Okay. But there's no getting around the fact that a God-honoring life is one that invests the things God has given you. Really seeks to use them. One of the characters that shows up over and over again in the book of Proverbs is 
the lazy man or the sluggard. Okay. Why is a lazy life an unwise life? Why can't you just don't worry, be happy? Why can't you just have enough to get by and spend as much of your time in a hammock as possible? Why? Because God made you for more. Because God has created you for more. Because God has made you capable of more. And it's not just a thought experiment. He's not, he's not just like, I wonder what will happen if I just make this person incredibly intelligent or significantly compassionate. Or if I put them in just the right place for the right time. Have you read biographies? Have you looked at history? Almost all of the greatest men and women in our world are not people who knew what their lives were for until they saw it in front of them. And it was like the Red Sea had parted and they're like, I have to walk through this. I was just telling a friend about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in Montgomery. His aspiration, his desire was to be a pastor and be a good one. How did he become a civil rights leader? Was it because he raised his hand and said, I'd like to volunteer for this? No, he was appointed. He was appointed to the Montgomery Improvement Association as their leader. And over the course of that next year, started to discern that this was actually God's calling on his life. But just like him, in that moment, he had an opportunity to say yes or say no, to step in or to step back. Your life will have those possibilities, and they may not put you at the front of an entire nation-changing civil rights movement, but you'll have those opportunities nonetheless. And Paul's exhortation here is to make the best use of the time. Okay. Now, I want to just counter one idea here. There is this American work ethic that justifies leaving everything on the field, exhausting everything, going all in and sacrificing the rest of your life, doesn't matter if it's friends or family or your relationship with God, on the altar of the almighty dollar. Okay. That is not wisdom. In fact, Jesus identifies one man in one of his stories as a fool. And it's a guy who reaps an abundant harvest. So big that he doesn't have the storage facilities to store it all. And he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build more barns. And I'll build enough barns for all of this. And then I can just retire early. And I can ride out the rest of my life just eating this one harvest. And a voice from heaven speaks to him and says, you fool. Don't you know that your soul will be required of you right now, tonight? That this is your last day on earth? Right? You've planned up so that you can eat and be merry. But what could he have done? And the implication is, is left pretty obvious in Jesus' parable. He could have done tremendous good with that abundant harvest. He was blessed so that he might be a blessing. Okay? This is the idea of redeeming the time. Okay? So carefully here means seeing what's around you, paying attention purposefully or redeeming the time means acting intentionally and boldly. And then look at the last one he says here, verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now I find this one also to be really interesting. Because remember what he's talking about here. He's talking about wisdom. 
and yet he uses the language of God's will. And again, here's a place where I think we often have too limited of a view. So when we think of what is God's will for my life and how do I find it, what we all expect is a neon sign in the heavens that says, turn right and not left. What we all expect is that God's leading is about still small voices and promptings of the Holy Spirit. And that's true. Read the book of Acts. Okay. Acts chapter 13, some guys are praying together and the Spirit just says to them, these two, I have a job for them to do. Send them out as missionaries. And Paul and Silas, they go. Okay. That's real. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. When he says, understand what the will of the Lord is, the idea that Paul is trying to nail down is not get to the praying. It's not listen for the voice. It's not what is God's will for my life. It is understanding the will of the Lord. Okay? And the word here for understanding, it's a knowledge word. It's a, of a normal set of words in the Greek New Testament, but is the one that implies and requires thought. Understanding takes effort, okay? So if you say, oh, I, I understand what you're saying, that's not this understanding. Understanding is reason. Understanding is logic. Understanding is good arguments versus bad. Understanding is study. That's the idea here. So go back to that business opportunity. The change in careers that I mentioned earlier. Understanding what the will of the Lord is is not always God makes it clear in prayer. Not always a prophetic word where some stranger calls you on the phone and says, God told me that you need to take this job and not that job. A lot of times it's understanding the will of the Lord, which means studying, which means reasoning, which means arguing, and, and not in the sense of fighting, but laying out a good logical case for why this is a better choice. It requires effort, thought, good counsel. And again, if you've read the book of Proverbs, this stuff is woven through all of it. How many times does the book of Proverbs affirm the significance of having good counselors? People in your life who, can, who you can consult with and can give you advice. Okay? Understanding the will of the Lord in, in the concept of wisdom, in the place that we're talking about, means, one, you want to do the best possible thing. You want to make the best possible choice. You are looking for the will of God. Okay. But it also means that you are doing that through pursuing understanding, through cultivating a, uh, you know, a better sense of what's in front of you and what the possible outcomes are, through hypothesizing of where this path leads versus this path. And here's the reason. Because in this sense, the will of the Lord is not about right or wrong. It's not like sin where there's one righteous and good thing and everything else misses that thing. This is choosing between many good options and trying to the best of your ability to choose the best one. And so notice the nuance here. God cares about your decisions. But this idea that he has this super secret plan for your life and he's grading you against if you get it right. That's not what we're talking about here. Let me just illustrate. When God comes to Solomon in the Old Testament, 
and says, Solomon, your dad was a great king. He loved me very much. He didn't get it all right, but because of his faithfulness to me, I just want to help you. I want to give you whatever you want. Is that a trick question? Does God only have one thing that Solomon can ask for and everything else? He's like, boy, you really blew that. There's no sense of that in the passage at all. Now, to be clear, when Solomon says, look, I'm just a young man and I've been appointed over the very, been appointed over the very people of God, I need wisdom. God says, good answer. He says, in fact, because you didn't ask for wealth or for long life or victory over your enemies, I'm going to give you all those as well. Okay, so it was a good answer and it was a very good answer. One that pleased God. Was it the only answer? No. Okay, that's wisdom. Understanding the will of the Lord functions in this place. Okay, and if you're trying to figure these things out in big decisions, let me suggest to you a posture that I've found helpful. It's a pretty simple formula, actually. If you are a Christian who loves and desires to honor and glorify God, and you want to do that in your life and in your decisions, does God desire for you to know his will? I'm going to assume yes. I'm going to assume that's the very character of God and the whole point. Okay. So what I would suggest to you is most of the time, doing God's will is having the best reasons that you can think of coupled with the best counsel available to you to make the best decision you can imagine and to do it with an open hand. And so when I walk through doors with the Lord, I go, all right, God, if I'm not going the right way, there's still time for you to turn this around. You can close doors that no one can open. You can open doors that no one can shut. And even as I walk through it, I go, all right, Lord, is this the way you want me to go? But so often the way that God works is just natural and right in front of us. It comes from discerning who he's made us to be and the opportunities he's presented and the sense of responsibility that we already feel. And it involves and entails the weighing of options, all of these things. And that's good because that's wisdom. And let me just point out one last thing. Wisdom is not something that you inherit. It's not something you're born with. Intelligence intuition, all of those things are, but wisdom is cultivated. And that means that it is readily available to all comers. But it has to be built. It has to be developed. It has to be tested. It learns from failure. All of that is fine and built into, baked into God's way of working. Now, are you getting to the point yet where you're like, why are we talking about this in church? Why does Paul feel the need to bring this up and say, if you're going to walk as a Christian, you have to walk in wisdom? It's because God saved all of you. Not just your soul and your body, but your mind as well. And the life that he's called you to is not a normal human life plus some unique Christian activities spread over the top like frosting. He wants for all of your life, from bottom to top, in every circumstance, in every relationship, to grow and to grow progressively into more and more honoring him, more and more serving your neighbors, more and more reflecting the image of God that he made you to be. And so he cares about your decisions, but not like you're taking the eternal SATs. 
because what he's trying to do is help you cultivate being wise. I want to I finish by drawing your attention to the book of Proverbs chapter 2. And let me clarify again. If you want to make wise decisions, you should ask God for help. I'm not removing that from the table. It's, it's, it's baked into the model. Like Solomon, God is pleased with those who say, I want more wisdom. But actions speak louder than words. And so I want you to listen to... Uh, I want you to listen to this passage out of Proverbs chapter 2. I want you to recognize where Proverbs or where wisdom is found and what this passage entails in terms of effort. So listen. My son, if you've received my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, And raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. What is the source of wisdom here in Proverbs? God is the giver of wisdom. But who is it who receives that wisdom? The one who longs for it, the one who treasures it, the one who seeks it, the one who inclines his heart to receive it, the one who calls out for insight. Okay. We talk a lot about grace, and grace means that there's nothing you can do to merit God's favor, but meriting is not the same thing as effort. The Bible has no problem with effort, Paul says, the grace of God worked in me to the degree that I worked harder than anyone else. He says, nevertheless, it was God's grace working in me. The issue is not effort. It's taking credit. He recognizes that everything he has is God-given. But he also recognizes that God's given it to be utilized. In the same way here, the idea of wisdom is that it is available for the taking. In the chapter before this, wisdom is personified as a woman walking in the middle of the street, calling out and saying, wisdom, free, anyone who wants it, come to me. It's readily available. Get it. Pursue it. Consider it. If you recognize that you're not very good at making decisions, we have an app for that. There are ways to grow into a better decision maker. If you recognize you were dealt, you know, uh, a bad hand in terms of self-control and you struggle to make the right decisions when shortcuts and simplicity is right in front of you, self-control is something you can develop. It's something you can supplement with good support. Wisdom is reaching out, employing those things, learning what doesn't work and applying other things. Wisdom is reading up on major issues that you're facing in your life, looking for proven methods of how to deal with them. And again, sometimes I think we as Christians can feel like, because it's not Bible, it's not to be utilized. And so we say, well, the scripture doesn't talk about this, so, you know, or these types of things, but but that's what wisdom is for. That's the whole point. The Bible has a very specific purpose in your life. 
and it is sufficient for that purpose. But God has built humanity capable of doing all sorts of things that the Bible doesn't do, of thinking, of logicking, of experimenting, of figuring out, of adapting, of all of these things. Okay. And Paul's point here is that you need to take the universal and moral reality of who God is and who he's made you to be, of the difference between right and wrong, and then you have to figure out how to live it out in this time and in this place and in these circumstances. And so the Bible commands, commands moral that we work because we were made for work. But it doesn't tell you if you need to be a garbage man or a politician. It doesn't tell you if you need to be a school teacher. It makes no distinction between high work and low work. So how do you determine those things? Opportunity, ability, the things that you find uh, benefit you and those around you. All of those are parts of wisdom. But wisdom is absolutely necessary to live out your life. And so if, if I can just make one exhortation this morning, if I can just take what Paul is trying to push us towards, and let me review. The Christian life is a careful life. It's a purposely active life. And it's a thoughtful life. Okay. When we put those together, here's the exhortation I would give you. The only place for you to get wisdom is in answering the things that are right in front of you right now who you're going to spend your time with today, how you're going to spend your time today, the choices you're going to make of when to volunteer for something at work, how you're going to respond to your relatives when they call and ask for money. All of these things are opportunities for wisdom. And so approach them carefully. Don't just do what comes naturally. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just try and you know, tune out and automatic pilot. With God's help, consider, think, prayerfully weigh options, receive advice, pay attention to the patterns, uh, you know, learn from your mistakes, all of these things, and then be looking for opportunities. Look for places where you can go, that's something I can do. That's something that I uniquely have an opportunity to step in. This is a limited time offer, and I'm going to go all in on it. And then cultivate understanding. Grow in your ability to make good choices, to recognize right and wrong. Gosh, we didn't even talk about voting this morning. But if you vote just based on policy as it's presented to you, or the tagline that resonates with your particular party, you are not voting wisely. A friend of mine a long time ago when they were um, voting on legalizing marijuana, he told me, I voted yes because I'm just curious what's going to happen. That's not wisdom. Turning society into your own little experiment box out of your curiosity is not wisdom. Wisdom goes, what's going to come of this? And it doesn't just believe one side, it listens to the other side, it weighs the options, okay? I believe with all my heart the reason why Paul has ex- exhorted us to walk wisely this morning is because wisdom matters. It's because a life that's lived carefully and proactively and with cultivating understanding is more honoring 
and more productive in terms of the glory of God. Okay. So watch out for this internal mechanism that compartmentalizes life into the things I do for God and the things I do. All of this area is opportunity to serve and honor God. All of this area is opportunity to cultivate in a greater way being what God has designed you to be. All of this, Jesus is king over. Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, who not only started free Christian universities because he believed that, uh, that education was important and that you can't do it apart from religious convictions. He started all these, not only that, but he started a Christian political party that was a major player in the Netherlands for 100 years. And this is what he said. He says, there is no inch in all the universe, not one square inch where Jesus Christ doesn't point to it and say, mine. Do you see your life through that lens? Are there areas you think that God doesn't care about that are just life stuff? They're his. And he's uniquely built you and put you in circumstances for such a time as this. This is Esther protocol. All of you are just where you are right now and God knowingly has stuff for you to do. A chapter before this, two chapters before this, actually I guess it's three, in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can't do that without wisdom. So let's ask for it and let's seek it. Let's pray.